0: Their courage will astound you, their stories will move you, their faith will inspire you. Welcome to Great Stories About Great Saints on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Happy Solemnity of All Saints Day, one of the highest church feast days of the year. That's why it's labeled with that great name of Solemnity. That's when you know you really need to pay attention to what the church is saying or specifically what the church is celebrating. This is actually the root of Halloween, All Hallows' Eve ushering in this great feast day of All Saints' Day. And today I'm so happy to share with you two of my great friends when it comes to heavenly bodies, and that is St. Alphonsus Liguori and Pope St. John Paul II. Stay tuned for Pope St. John Paul II, a pope you know and love and probably know many stories of him. I remember the day he died, and we will be talking about some of the foundational moments, but I believe that Pope St. John Paul II's life was marked by the necessity of human freedom, and how that flourished, and how it was suppressed in his life, and yet how he was a symbol for freedom. But before we can be free, we have to be formed. And that's why St. Alphonsus Liguori, probably one of the saints whom I have read the most of his work in terms of the saints outside of Pope St. John Paul II and Thomas Aquinas is St. Alphonsus Liguori. His work, if you don't know him, he's actually a doctor of the church. And if you don't know what a doctor of the church is, that's okay. You could guess, but I'll share that with you a little later on. His life is truly marked by the formation of others out of love for Christ. There are four key parts to the images behind St. Alphonsus Liguori that shapes how he led to confronting people at the time of his life. He was born September 27th, 1696. He's actually a very, very talented Italian lawyer and later became a priest and bishop, but his feast is August 1st, if you're curious, and he has written some of my favorite works. He I will say, personally, has produced the greatest growth for me when it comes to the saints just because of the quantity of his writing and the challenge that it poses. He's very practical, which is interesting because he's someone who was a huge fan of asceticism. And as a young Catholic, I think that I sometimes am remiss the fact that we've lost much of the ascetical practices of our catholic faith of enduring true tem- uh, true penances to produce good growth in our lives. So, you know, St. Alphonsus Ligori, although you might not realize it. If you, like my family, grew up going to Stations of the Cross or have ever attended Stations of the Cross, the most commonly used uh, stations is known as the Way of the Cross. And that was actually produced and created by St. Alphonsus Ligori himself. So, you're probably familiar with one of his. Best known works, The Way of the Cross. And I bar none, I think it's the best. I don't think there are any that are any better than The Way of the Cross. And so if you've never prayed with those stations, I highly recommend it. He's also well known for The Glories of Mary. And if I've actually not read that work, but he's very many people have a little bit about his life because I think it's helpful. I hate when we rattle on just like random facts about saints sometimes in a homily. It's like, great, I know the day he was born, I know the day he died, and I know he helped feed the poor, for example. But there's much to him, and that's why I want to dive into some of his actual written works today as well. But a little bit about the man. So this is inspiring for me. And talk about expectations. He already had a doctorate in both canon and civil law by the age of 16. So church canonical law as well as civil law by the age of 16. Now, he ended up uh, actually beginning to practice law by the age of 20. And it's really impressive to just see what a talented attorney he was there in Italy. Now, later he became a bishop at the age of 66. And he, it's interesting because though years before that, his formation started with a sound legalistic mind, uh, well formed. And even as a young man at the age of 18, before entering into the seminary, he joined a confraternity, which was very common at that time. It was Our Lady of Mercy. And there he helped specifically with people at hospital for incurable illnesses. He actually helped in uh, washing the afflicted bodies, feeding the helpless, and even changing their bedclothes. And I'm in—I really admire that because I think this is something that, unless you maybe are in the medical field, I don't think this care for the sick is as common. This is what's so admirable in part about Saint. Uh, Mother Teresa and others, uh, Saint Damien Molokai because they stepped into the illness of others and nurtured and cared for and loved them. I and mean, just look at how spooked out we are of illnesses today, and how we avert. I mean I'm guilty of if someone's coughing behind me in mass, I'm like cringing, going, "Okay, please, <laughs> maybe we should have stayed home. Please don't cough on me." You know, it's one of those things, sickness, we're terrified of. And just look at the debate over vaccines today, and we have this infected view of the human person, yet St. Alphonse Ligori, at the age of 18, while having this incredibly successful law, um, practicing the law as an attorney, he is caring, volunteering, helping to treat peer- people with uncurable diseases and illnesses, washing their literal bodies, feeding them, changing bedclothes, the humility that that takes, but also It's a lesson for us, and this is why I think studying the lives of the saints and, like, really not just being generic, but getting to know them is so important because the saints engaged in undesirable tasks that today no one wants to do, and that is St. Alphonsus LeCour. I think that's why he was so humble and, and so sacrificial because he did the very things that he probably didn't desire to do. Now, it's interesting because by the age of 20, the Redemptorist, which, by the way, he founded the Order well-known today as the Rem- Redemptorist, the Order comments about how he was regarded as one of the most gifted lawyers working in Naples at that time. Now, they also note that practicing law, even as successfully and widely as he did, didn't satisfy him. It didn't satisfy him, they say, at the deepest level of his heart and soul. I think this is very common for many of us today. Now, to the dismay of his own father, after losing a major court case, one of the most important court cases he had ever taken on, he ended up, after losing, ends up entering the priesthood. And I think there's much to be said of that. The fact that a career that he was immensely successful at didn't satisfy him on the level of the heart and the soul. He was pleasing the world, and in fact, he almost rejected pleasing the world in the sense that his father was disappointed that he would leave a successful legal career to become a priest. It's easy to be distracted by the desires of others, to be distracted by the success of the world, by the money, by the power. But I think the fact that he gave up that incredible career in law, and yes, he left on a negative point after losing a major case, but that's okay, I think that he shows us that just because we're good at something doesn't mean we should do it or even have to do it. Maybe it's not God's path for us. Maybe it's not the best way that we can serve others. Maybe there are better ways. And that is what St. Alphonsus Liguori's life is marked by. He lived at a time in the church where heresies were running rampant, even rejections such as. The rejection with regard to free will, and that God can just um, violate this idea that God could violate free will in the respect that grace could just abound without any cooperation, but. We know fundamentally, as human beings, we have free will. That's why we can freely choose to reject God. So he helped to clarify in at a time when even some of the teaching in the church was harsh in terms of delivery and rather pompous, as it's noted, for that time that he lived in. Again, he was born at the end of the 17th century, practicing his law in, um, in his religious life into the 18th century. Now, he... He was formed. Before I talk a little bit about some of the reform he engaged in, I think it's significant to note that his perspective on much of his preaching, on his writing and works, were centered around four key things the baby Jesus, Jesus on the cross, the Eucharist, and Mary, the mother of Christ. And these four key areas are profound in every single thing he writes. He has wonderful book, and I'll talk a little bit about it later, uh, that's fantastic for the Advent season. I'll share more about it in just a bit. And it helps in guiding us through those weeks and months prior to Christmas and turning to the significance that Jesus Christ became a tiny infant in that humility and suffering and how he endears us to himself through his infancy, through his childhood. But see Alphonse Ligori turns our gaze time and time again to the sacrificial offering of Jesus Christ suffering on the cross. Yet he celebrates, St. Alphonsus Liguori celebrates in that third key area of his teaching, the Eucharist and how central the Eucharist is, seeing Jesus in the Eucharist as vivacious and loving, but also at the core of his ministry and his vision of God was understanding the role of the Blessed Virgin Mary and love for her. Mary was brought into question at that time, and he passionately defended Our Lady. Now, let me share with you a little bit about what he did in terms of reform. He lived in a time somewhat similar to us when formation of priests was not the greatest in seminaries. He actually was focused on training and forming the clergy. He focused on two key areas, on preaching, so delivery of homilies, for example, and the confessional, how priests were engaging with the laity in the confessional who were coming to him. That's why he's, among other things, patron saint of moral theology and patron saint of confessors. So, that is patron saint of priests. So, if you're going in for confession, you need some advice, or you want to pray for our priests, pray f- through the intercession of St. Alphonsus Liguori for our priests, or pray for St. Alphonsus Liguori to help in guiding um, through by his intercession before our Heavenly Father, uh, our confession, our penitence, our awareness of our sin. Now, he helped to address what was known as rather pompous sermons at that time, and he brought a great level of simplicity and kindness, which is interesting because if you read his work, I was laughing at the fact that he's described as bringing simplicity and kindness to the clergy and how the clergy communicated the teachings of Christ. Because if you read what St. Alphonsus Liguori wrote, he he's not harsh, but he is harshly blunt in teaching the reality of sin, the glory of heaven, the danger of hell, the significance of sin, mortal sin. And what he does is give concrete opportunities for growth in his work. If you read any of his books, and I'm linking on social media as well as in the episode notes, to a ton of his books, and some of them I've read, I'll link specifically by name, and then there's a place where you can grab a handful of them but he's known as a doctor of the church. Now, if someone's known as a doctor of the church, they often have a decent amount of writings, and he has an immense library of works. What is a doctor of the church? Well, you can guess someone who's rather formative and informative on the issue of Catholic church teaching. All of their writings are considered by the church when they're declared a doctor of the church, and it's often not until many years after their death. Uh, All of his works, along with other doctors of the church, are labeled essentially as free from error. And all their works also play a significant role in advancing Jesus Christ and his church, clarifying and teaching the church's key doctrine, forming us in prayer. It's fundamental, and his work is key on this. Unfortunately, I don't think we turn enough to his work. Now, he was key in refuting error when it came to teachings on Our Lady, where people were questioning her immaculate conception, and also on Jansenism. If you haven't heard of that, it had to do, I mentioned earlier, with the denial of free will, essentially, when it came to receiving grace. It's almost as if God could violate our free will and just force us to do his will by giving us this abundance of graces that's not how it works. God gives us an abundance of graces, but there has to be some level of cooperation. Every good work that we do comes from God and his grace. However, we have to be willing to be a vessel of his grace. Now, there was an apostolic letter honoring St. Alphonsus Liguori written in 1871 by Pope Pius IX. And in that letter, it was when they declared St. Alphonsus Liguori doctor of the church years after his death. It says, And listen to this because I love the way that Pope Pius IX wrote because it shows how combative in a positive way we were when it came to theories and teachings that stood in direct confrontation against our Catholic faith. When speaking of St. Alphonsus Liguori, Pope Pius the Knight says, It was then that Alphonsus Maria Lagori stood up, fighting the good fight, opened his mouth in the midst of the church, and by his learned writings and labors, eradicated this plague, roused from hell, and sought to it to tear it out and to exan- exterminate it from the field of the Lord. Wow. That's, those are intense words. That's the Pope speaking. 1871. What is he saying? That at a time when people weren't teaching what was correct about Jesus Christ and his church, St. Alphonsus Liguori stood up, opened his mouth, eradicated the plague of false doctrine, and tore it out and exterminated it from the field of the Lord. What is the field of the Lord? Souls. So in other words, what did St. Alphonsus Liguori do? He stood up, opened his mouth, viscerally attacked, labored significantly through writings and effort to get rid of those ideologies that stood between our souls and the eternal kingdom of heaven. And that's inspiring, especially for us in the current culture we live in and the many and various ideologies that we ourselves face. Pope Pius VII said, by wording and, word and writing in the middle of the century, St. Alphonsus Liguori showed the way of justice to those wandering at night, whereby they could pass from the power of darkness into the light and kingdom of God. I love that Pope Pius VII emphasizes that this is essentially rightly ordered passion, that St. Alphonsus Liguori was doing important work for the sake of justice. What is justice? Giving to others what is their due. That's a proper definition of justice. And Giving to others their due is the truth and reality of Jesus Christ and his church. Why did St. Alphonse Liguori do this? Well, we read, because he was bringing against the power of darkness, he brought the light and kingdom of God through his writings, through his labors. Now, St. Alphonse Liguori was extremely practical and concrete in helping people to grow. He would be asked over and over again, okay, write something to help people during the Advent season and growing closer to the Christ child. Write something to help prepare people for their death, to acknowledge the reality of death and the significance of sin embattling sin. And so, Sinophon Sligori was constantly living with the people. He had this approach of missionary work where he didn't look at it from a bird's eye view, but he was with the people in his formation of them. He understands significantly human nature, the human soul, the desire for God, but the ways of the world that draw us away. You know, a couple years ago, my husband, who knows my heart so well for Christmas, bought me the multi-volume series of St. Alphonsus Liguori's Moral Theology. I think there are like maybe nine or 11 books. So, I have this multiple hardbound series of his Moral Theology, which I still haven't read as much of it as I would like. It's one of those books that you read it and it's deep. It's deep the way St. Thomas Aquinas is, but in some respects, shorter and simpler. So, I just want to give you one sample of something from his moral theology that I think is very relevant to today. That is the theme of sloth. He has a section in his moral theology in his second book where he asks, what is sloth? How do we address sloth, essentially? So, and this is what I love about his work. It's always for me in an examination of conscience when reading what he writes. He, what is sloth? He addresses sloth as a sadness of the mind. And he turns to St. Thomas Aquinas and he acknowledges that St. Thomas Aquinas points the sloth as number one, essentially summarizing here, the remission of the mind in the exercise of virtue. In other words, we're, we're not engaging mentally in virtue or in anything that might include work. We're avoiding labor. We're avoiding effort, both in mind and therefore also in body when it comes to the growth in virtue. He also labels sloth in a second sense with regard to sadness and tiredness of divine friendship, that is with God, and that through the avoidance of laborious virtue that requires us to engage in a relationship, that we're not preserving that relationship with God. Essentially, we're failing to maintain that divine relationship with God. It's like we're not engaging in conversation. How do you maintain a friendship with someone? It could be a family member, a friend, unless you put the effort in. And often. It requires sacrificial effort to be put in to feed that friendship, just like you feed a fire to continue to get it to grow and burn. And so St. Alphonsus Ligori actually points to how sloth can be a mortal sin. I think we really do struggle in our current culture with sloth, or, which is laziness, but acedia, which is known as spiritual laziness, essentially. What St. Saint, what Saint Alphonsus de Goury does is he points to sloth has actually often being immortal. So, and he gives a couple examples. One is where he gives the example of torpor, which is essentially where you're doing things lethargically in life. And the, he says, torpor when good things are done, but without due fervor. So, he points to the fact that we can do good things, but when we're doing it without fervor, we can actually do it in a way that is not virtuous, that doesn't lead to growth for us, Although we're running through the motions, that's great of doing good things. We're not doing good things for the right reason. In other words, fervor matters. Intention matters. Alertness matters. And so he rejects being lethargic in our actions, essentially. I think that we live in a culture where whether it's a good or bad action, we're kind of just moving through the motions. We're so distracted and unaware And so I take this challenge of St. Alphonse Ligori, where he points to this can be a mortal sin. And he talks about wandering of the mind, especially in prayer and when going to Mass. And he talks about essentially how we can intentionally or unintentionally fail to be present when we pray. Now, there's a difference between saying, okay, here's my half an hour prayer time, or here I am at Mass, and I'm failing to pay attention because I'm not working to keep myself in attention to Christ in that relationship versus maybe there's a time when you're struggling throughout the day and you start reciting a prayer to calm your mind or bring your attention or resist temptation. He said, it's one thing if we're sitting down in dedicated time, we're supposed to be praying and paying attention to God. It's another if we're praying and passing as we work or as we're fighting temptation in a moment throughout the day that we might get distracted when we call upon our Lord in repetitive prayer Maybe not as alert as usual, but what he points to is the problem of how often we pray, and this can be a mortal sin, without attentiveness to prayer, where we wander. And he gives the example, and I think this is a good reminder, it's a challenge for me during Mass, especially with young children. I think that even if you don't have young children, I think that the devil's in the details trying to get us to be distracted during Mass, specifically around the time of the consecration of our Lord Jesus Christ, when the bread and wine are transformed in the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ in Holy Communion. And so part of this Eucharistic revival, I challenge you, as St. Alphonsus Lagoy points to the fact that we can even be engaging in a mortal sin by allowing ourselves to be distracted easily during the consecration at Mass. He refers to this as grave due to the fact that it leads to grave irreverence and danger of error with regard to what we believe about the Eucharist. I think this is significant right now as many and most people, even in our Catholic churches and even many priests, struggle with belief in the true presence of Christ in the Eucharist. And so it's something to ponder and think about. Of, I know for me with little kids, I always try to make sure no matter what, even if I'm maybe trying to nurse during Mass or wrangling a kid, that I'm somehow at the bare minimum on my knees during that consecration, and that I'm trying to... Depending on what's more or less distracting for the children, myself and the people around me to, in some way or another, draw my children's attention to the consecration of Jesus. This is why I love the fact that we have, if your parish has the bells at the consecration, those key moments during the Liturgy of the Eucharist where we're drawing our attention to the significant moments, the transubstantiation or the epiclesis of the calling down of the Holy Spirit upon the uh, bread and wine just before the consecration. It's a good opportunity. To turn our eyes, and I think that the moral theology of St. Alphonse Liguori was, again, a good reminder. Like I said, his work is very much so a, a opportunity for an examination of conscience, but he gives concrete ways to grow. Pay attention during Mass to the consecration. Be more alert when you're praying, focus on eliminating those distractions. I think these are very concrete ways to grow. And that's what I love about his work, even though it's very blunt and recognizing this is sin, stop doing it wrong, let's do it right. I think we need those types of guideposts. And so his book, his work Saint Alphonse Liguori is very, very helpful. You're listening to Trending with Tim right here on Relevant Radio, talking about great stories about great saints. Something you might see as you start to ponder if you've never known him before in Saint Alphonsus Liguori, when he's pictured in icons, he's often, usually depicted as an older man, and he has a bowed head and a tilted head. He also is depicted with a pen and a book, due to all of his writings and being a doctor of the church. But here's what's interesting. At the age of 71, he started to deal with severe pains and it led to an incurable bending of his neck. The pressure was so significant for St. Alphonsus Liguori that his chin literally rested on his chest so heavily with such significant pressure, it created a perpetual raw wound on his chest. He faced immense suffering, yet he persevered and was humble in the midst of it. At the end of his life, especially in the final 18 months of his life, he suffered what's known often as a dark night of the soul, struggling with scrupulosity, fears, temptations. It's recognized of every, temptations against every single article of the faith and what the church teaches. Temptations against every single virtue. Yet he fought to remain in a state of grace. He fought to remain united to Christ. We are in a battle right now against, principalities and powers. We read in 1st Peter that St. Peter says the devil our opponent is prowling about the world like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And St. Alphonsus Liguori gives us a wonderful example and model of what it means to stay persevering in the Lord. So that when temptation comes, even when we're fighting to be in a state of grace, we can endure those dark nights. And that separation what se- might seem like a separation from God, but is truly an opportunity for greater union. Now, St. Alphonse Liguori is a great saint for helping us to prepare for Christmas. I'll discuss more of this in the days and weeks to come. On winter evenings, his writings, and also, by the way, he was a musician and composer, were often read and also recited and sung at the time of Christmas and the Advent season. I'll put a book recommendation. I highly recommend you order it ahead of the Advent season. It's called the Incarnation, Birth, and Infancy of Jesus Christ. And this is a fantastic meditation during the Advent season. But I wanna share with you what is actually known as the most famous Christmas carol in Italy. Andrea Botticelli performs this and it was composed by St. Alfonso Sagori and it speaks of the glorious Christ child. My dearest child most holy, here is Andre Bocelli singing St. Alfonso Ligori. I'll be right back. All Saints Day means all saints, all day. Incredible journeys of faith. Herotic holiness. Welcome back to Great Stories About Great Saints on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. We are celebrating All Saints Day with great stories about great saints. Now it's time for a saint you know well, may have even met him in person, spoke to him. If you have a story about Pope St. John Paul II, of having met him in person, I would love to hear it. Number is 888-914-9149. One of my favorite stories about Pope St. John Paul II, near and dear to me, was that we have a family member, an uncle who is the deacon in the church and uh, had the opportunity to meet Pope St. John Paul II on a couple of occasions. And when he first met, met him, very tall tall, strong, robust man. And he went to meet the Holy Father, Pope St. John Paul II. And he had the opportunity to say hello and bow down to uh, kiss the Holy Father's ring. And when he went to do so, he knelt down and he couldn't get back up. He said, it was as if I had paralysis. And Holy Father's eyes, Pope St. John Paul II's eyes locked on his and vice versa. And they shared this powerful moment of just truth and love and compassion. I can't remember what the Holy Father said to him at that moment, but what was significant to me was just the the humility of being there before Pope St. John Paul II and his kindness. He said, it was as if no one else in the whole wide world existed. There was that connection and love and respect and that blessing from the Holy Father. I was brought to my knees. He said, I couldn't move. The holiness of that man was so profound. If you didn't know this, Pope St. John Paul II, I think this is significant. Pope St. John Paul II lived at a time that's considered the bloodiest century in human history. Under one regime to the next, from German occupation of the Nazis to a communist regime. Did you know that he was significantly spied on? by Soviet communists. I'll share with you much of his story from my, some of my favorite stories about this great saint, but let's start at the very beginning. You may know his parents died when he was a very young boy. He was only nine years old, roughly when his mother died and about 21, when his own father died. He was, along with his own brother dying at a very early age, he found himself an orphan without family. He saw many of his friends and family members die in the midst of two wars and regimes that stood against the people there in Poland. He was born, if you didn't know, in 1920, which is significant to me because my great-grandmother, whom I was very close to, was born in 1919. So he seems so real and close to me, he actually, if you didn't know his real name, is Carol Votila because when you come become Pope, you take a name. And he t- took a name of Pope St. John Paul II after many saints, St. Saint Paul, St. John of the Cross, which is a Carmelite, but also St. John the Beloved Apostle. Now, as I mentioned, he lived in one of the bloodiest centuries of all time and he went from german occupation of the nazis to the communist regime just looking at some markers in his own life in 1940 when he was 20 years old his own studies were interrupted and he had to stop his education because he had to go to work manual labor during world war ii he in engaged in a secret underground community, uh, surrounded in the arts and plays, because preserving culture for him and some of the people at that time, when even literature itself was being burnt and destroyed, they preserved culture through acting, through theater. He entered into the seminary in secrecy when he was 22 years old in Krakow. So he literally was a part of the underground church. He was actually, I didn't know this until today, he was hit by a car in 1944, and I thought that was really interesting. He was even hidden at another time during that same year after being hit by a car in the archbishop's home to avoid being arrested by the Nazis. Now, when World War II ended in 1945, he resumed his studies yet again, but the war wreaked havoc on his life, interrupting his studies, interrupting his time in seminary, leading him to have to literally hide underground from the Nazis who wanted to arrest him and take his life. Now, as a young priest, he went from one regime to the next, then sliding into Soviet communism. Now, think about it. Communism is a rejection of God, rejection of self, rejection of family. The very idea of who you are, you're stripped from any sense of identity, familiarity with family, with with community, with God. That's what our young people face yet again today. But what I love about Pope St. John Paul II is how his very life, although marked by a violation of freedom, he is a symbol of freedom. He is a symbol of hope in that he lived through the grace of Jesus Christ, a life that fought for the joy, the very joy of the gospel in his life, even in the midst of immense suffering, being orphaned, losing parents, losing friends, losing brother, even being elevated within the church itself to bishop and pope when it was unwanted, undesired. I find in Pope St. John Paul II a rather kindred spirit. He was quite the outdoorsman. And you may know as well these photos of him where he's dressed as just a normal person even though he was a priest and at times a bishop. And yet, because he lived under this radical anti-God culture where Catholicism was being somewhat tolerated at the time under the Soviets, they watched every move. Of the people. Now, you may have seen the photos where Pope Saint John Paul II. It's actually my screen, my um, screen drop. What is that called? Back, backdrop on my phone of Pope Saint John Paul II just wearing everyday clothes. He's got a face full like Santa Claus of shaving cream, and he's shaving his face out in the woods. What does that symbolize? What do these photos mean? You may see photos of him celebrating mass on an overturned kayak, camping with groups of young people. Those pictures for me are a symbol of freedom. Do you know the story? Because of Soviet communists, you weren't allowed to be seen out in public with a priest, especially young groups of young people coming together. They were broken up because they would be considered rebellious. He, to help preserve freedom and formation, answer the deepest questions of the human heart and soul, would take young people in secrecy out into the woods camping. He would wear civilian clothes, lay clothes, and he would go by the name of Vuyek, which meant uncle. Now, the people who would come with him often didn't even know each other's real names. They wouldn't associate with each other outside of these camping trips, where they go out into the wilderness to celebrate mass, to learn what truth is, to be catechized and formed. Those photos of Pope St. John Paul II In the woods, camping, celebrating mass, shaving his beard with a big face full of shaving cream. I'll have to have my producer post a photo. It's one of my favorite photos when he's out shaving outside. They actually called this community in this time in the woods, Shrodovisco. It was a reference to a place in a time of interior freedom. And when I speak to young people now, I often encourage them because I hear them. They don't feel free. They feel bombarded manipulated, canceled into truths that violate their very well-being, their bodies, that violate what they desire so deeply, yet at the same time, the desire to fit in is so profound. And so he is in these photos, for me, representation of the freedom that God calls us to. In fact, it's interesting because he advised many, many, many couples. And by the way, the couples he advised and the couples who got married have a 100% divorce-free rate. It's actually pretty neat when you look at some of the statistics of the young couples he married and formed. Now, he, when in these communities out in the wilderness, when they called him Vuyak for uncle because they couldn't call him father or be seen with a priest, one day he ends up being called out of his camping trip to be spoken to by the cardinal to find out that he has he was just a priest at the time. He's going to be made a bishop, an auxiliary bishop. And so he has to go from the cardinal to return back to his bishop to deliver the news to his bishop that he is now an auxiliary bishop. And on his way to deliver the news, he is waiting to catch a midnight train and he finds a local convent and goes to the convent, just asks the sisters where the adoration chapel is and if he can just come and pray. And he's there for hours upon hours throughout the day into the evening, late into the night. And he's laying the entire time unmoving prostrate before our Lord Jesus Christ in the tabernacle. And the nuns start to come up to him saying, you Father, are you okay? And there's a story where Father Jan Zeka re- recites that the story goes that he stayed for so long in prayer deep into the night that the sisters were actually worried about him and they kept checking on him. At one point, they came and roused him for dinner and he begged them because he was so overwhelmed by the fact that he was being asked to be a bishop now. He said, allow me to stay here. I have much to discuss with the Lord. As if he was taking up with the Lord, you know, his, his grievances about being a bishop, but in Holy humility saying yes. Now, upon delivering the news after his night train to the bishop that he was chosen as auxiliary bishop, he begged his bishop to allow him to return back to his camping trip with the young people he left in the woods in secret. And the bishop said no initially, but then. Pope St. John Paul II there, then Carol Votila begged him, but who will celebrate Mass for these young people in the wilderness? And so then the bishop agrees, but you need to be back in time for, and he was just barely back in time for his elevation to bishop. And one of the things I think is really neat about these camping trips and all the young people that he formed, they would come to him time and time again for advice and guidance, especially at a time when their freedom was immensely suppressed. They couldn't even be seen out in public with a priest. They weren't supposed to be engaging in groups of youth, and they didn't even know each other's names when they'd go on these camping formation trips. But he would often, they say, never exactly gave them advice When they'd ask him, Father, what should I do about this? What should I do about this? what are your thoughts on this? He'd turn and look at them and say, what are you going to do? In other words, he would inspire the great gift of free will, but exercising free will for the right thing. That freedom is for the sake of the good, rather than the avoidance of commitment and obligation. That in our freedom, we have the ability to thrive, to find joy and ultimately to find Christ. Now, his privacy was significantly violated throughout the course of his life. As I mentioned, he lived from one regime to the next, seen friends and family die in the midst of German occupation and then into Soviet communism. The Soviet spies actually had considered him a dangerous ideological adversary. They had a special unit dedicated solely to the surveillance of Pope St. John Paul II. Now, during that time, they actually ended up collecting nearly two dozen crates worth of content on all of the information they had been gathering on him. His phone line was tapped. He couldn't even go to the restroom in privacy. His house was tapped. They were listening and watching every single one of his correspondence and his homilies. They were studied word for word, sentence by sentence. It's interesting because in those notes, some of what is reviewed is the fact that they knew he prayed for six to eight hours a day. I think that's very inspiring to see the formation of a man who suffered immensely, was so seriously and violatingly spied on day in and day out, yet he had this humble love for God, inspiration to form young minds who are being stymied in growth toward truth, freedom, and ultimately Christ. He was a part of the battle for souls during a time not just of two regimes, but during the time when radical feminism was on the rise. One quote I love of his where he said, every great work, all holiness, is born in silence and recollection. He's inspiring in his prayer life. If you know the stories when he became Pope, his advisors and secretaries and people who would keep his schedule knew that Pope St. John Paul II's heart was so in his mind and his All of his missionary work, his whole life was centered around devotion to the Eucharist, especially going and being on bended knee before our Lord Jesus Christ in adoration, or even when Jesus Christ wasn't exposed, but he was in the tabernacle there housed. Pope St. John Paul II would turn day and night toward Christ in the sacrament of the Eucharist. So, when he'd travel, when he'd pass by a church, a chapel, he'd always insist on stopping and going in. And as the story goes, his advisors would actually have to go and hide the doors to the chapel. They would say, don't tell the Holy Father that there's a chapel there. Don't tell him that there's adoration. Don't tell him where the tabernacle is because what would happen is the Holy Father was actually notoriously late for many things for two reasons. One, if you were with him, People say time and time again that it was as if no one else existed. He was there and he was present to you and he would take his time with you. So that would often lead him to be late for his next appointment. But the other reason is that if he found out there was an adoration chapel or a tabernacle holding our Lord Jesus Christ, he would always pause, no matter what, to stop and pray and visit our Lord. He was on God's time, certainly not his own or ours. That was a great inspiration for my friends and I in college. I remember in college, all of us would try to make a daily holy hour to spend an hour a day, even if we were reading some of our faith-based homework in the chapel or sitting in silence. And it was such a joy. It was such a formative time for each and every single one of us and forming us and helping us to discover interior freedom in the midst of the culture we live in and the pressures of the time. To help us in rooting out sin by looking at the beauty of our lord i encourage you if you have never read any of the works of pope saint john paul ii a great book easy read and absolutely delightful to jo- go into with tons of stories is saint john paul the great his five loves by jason everett and he touches on one of those five loves being his love of the eucharist and how formative that was for pope saint john paul ii now when he was named pope he He lived, as I mentioned, a life dedicated to the Eucharist. He confronted everything from second and third wave feminism. He warned against abortion. He called abortion in Europe demographic suicide, which indeed in 1985, little did we know how bad of a demographic suicide we would be in today. With much of Europe... And here in the United States, we're below replacement level. That would be 2.1 children. We're not even having 1.6 children. That's worse than places in Europe. He wrote countless letters, a letter to women, uh, a short letter and a longer letter known as mulieris dignitatum, where he writes looking deeply into the vocation of women, the gift of women. He calls it the genius of women. He very clearly reaffirmed the teacher's ongoing teaching and tradition, a very clear tradition on a male-only priesthood, declaring in 1994 yet again the church's teaching that women cannot be priests and must be held definitively. He loved to call himself the feminist pope because he really did speak to the hearts and lives of women at a time when radical feminism was destroying what it meant to be woman, attacking the very idea that our bodies matter, that we're made for life-giving, self-giving love as Jesus Christ modeled on the cross. Yet modern ideologies of feminism reject that very idea of sacrificial love. You do you. What about your career? What about your education? What about the timing of when you want to do things? Pope St. John Paul II also, I think, very significant and inspiring. I look at I love to look at saints and see how they knew one another. And if you're just joining me, you're listening to Trending with Timory here on Relevant Radio. It's All Saints Day, a solemnity in the church, marking one of the highest feast days in the church. Whenever something's labeled with a solemnity, it's a moment to take a pause and pay attention. And on All Saints Day, we celebrate all of those who are in heaven, those named and unnamed. If you look at uh, the—and I do think this is interesting— In challenging at the same time, those named saints in the church really fall between about 16,000, 22,000. In the course of 2,000 years, that's it. And and there's much that could be said if we look at the labeling of who is and isn't considered a saint and getting into Orthodox and saints who were considered saints before some of the Orthodox split up, but that's not that many. Over the course of that time, if you look at this list of saints, it, it challenges you to Ponder how necessary it is to conform your life to Christ, but also to watch who you're friends with. And one thing I love to see is how the saints traveled in packs. The saints knew other saints. They were encouraged and inspired by one another. And one of those profound friendships that I love, and I'm going to post a picture of this is the friendship between Pope Saint John Paul II and Saint Mother Teresa of Calcutta? There is a beautiful picture, actually a number of them, of Pope Saint John Paul II with Mother Teresa. There's one of which I'm just thinking where they're holding, and they're often depicted in pictures holding hands. This beautiful friendship, this. You know, people could refer to them as two very powerful people if you like to think of it in that sense as power. I like to look at them as two very holy people who have given everything to our Lord in service to him, in humility. Pope St. John Paul II, who never wanted to be bishop, never wanted to be pope. St. Mother Teresa, who literally picked up the ill in Calcutta, the lepers, and cleansed them herself, housed them, fed them. Two saints who had to have been a great encouragement to one another Why we see them in photos. And they're holding hands. There's a picture we're posting online, uh, if you follow me at Timmerie, T-I-M-M-E-R-I-E, of Pope St. John Paul II hope, helping St. Mother Teresa in her old age stepping down the steps after a time of prayer and speaking together. And in 2003, how incredible to see he beatified his own friend, starting the beginning of the steps toward becoming a saint in her beatification in 2003. Just think about that. He was able to be a part of recognizing and marking the miracles of Saint Mother Teresa intervening in heaven for those of us on earth. Friends travel in packs, but saints travel in packs too. Who are you friends with? I think that's a great inspiration to think of. St. Jerome New St. Augustine. We have sibling saints, the St. Saint Scholastica and St. Benedict. You have the saint's family of the Zaley family, or sorry, the Martin family. Zaley and Louis who were the parents of St. Therese of Lisieux and her sisters who entered into religious life, whose cause for being saints are lo- being looked into as well, but her parents are saints. She's a saint. You look at the lives of St. John of the Cross and St. Teresa of Avila who encouraged one another in their faith. Holy, saintly friendships. St. Saint Claire of Assisi and St. Francis of Assisi. Their stories are so inspiring left alone. But when you look at these friendships, it always challenges me to question what types of friendships am I engaging in? What types of behavior? What types of conversations? How do I encourage people to growth with love. We spoke earlier of St. Alphonsus Liguori and how he led to great reform to bring gentleness and clarity and simplicity to preaching in the 18th century at a time when sermons were rather pompous. Am I pompous in my engagement with those whom I should be inspiring and loving to live and walk in the Lord, to chase after his kingdom? If you've not been with us these last 12 weeks, we have been working through the writings of Pope St. John Paul II in his Theology of the Body series. We're on week, I believe, 14, wrapping it up in just Just about a month here, and I hope you'll join me because I chose to walk through these wonderful writings of Pope St. John Paul II, who he shared in story or in week after week catechetical talk. If you ever go to St. Peter's each week. The Pope, ever since Pope St. John Paul II and Pope Paul the, Pope St. Paul VI, they started giving general audiences. So if you're there in Rome on Wednesday, you can gather in St. Peter's Square and the Pope comes out and gives a teaching lesson. And Pope St. John Paul II, over the course of five years, gave 133 ta- catechetical talks known as the Theology of the Body. It's all about human anthropology rooted in our Catholic faith. It's biblical. It's philosophical. It's fantastic. And I will tell you this, it's prophetic for speaking into the challenges we faced in our culture today. And so as we mark this great day of All Saints Day, whether it's Pope St. John Paul II, St. Mother Teresa, St. Alphonsus Liguori, those who have walked before us in faith, let them become our friends. Let them become our intercessors before the throne of God, for that is where they live. And that is where they will help to guide us their intercession, calling upon the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ to transform us to the great love of Christ, love of neighbor. We can't do it alone. We need good friends. And maybe you're someone who says, I don't think I have really great friends. Maybe you don't have great examples of faith in your family. Maybe no one practices the faith or practices it in a way that lives and shows the actual Catholic church teaching. Well, if you're lonely, if you feel isolated, turn to the saints. Something I love and I hope you'll remember if you take nothing else away today. When we're at Mass, when we're celebrating Mass, when we're praying the Mass and the consecration, the time of the Eucharistic celebration occurs, all of the saints and angels, all of the heavenly bodies are with us in that church. Take consolation in our great friends, the saints. Be inspired and grow to love them so that we too might enter into Christ's heavenly kingdom. Let that be the inspiration and purpose behind the friendships we have. I'd like to share with you now, since the Pope St. John Paul II is a modern saint, Pope St. John Paul II, when he visited the cathedral in Chicago on October 4th in 1979, sang the pater noster, that's the Our Father in Latin. I hope you enjoy this. Happy All Saints Day. Pater Noster, qui es in Cedis, Sanctificetur noventur, a meia pregium tu, fiat voluntas,